So we always start with the body. That's the ground, the base on which we sit. The body is our vehicle for this life. Without the body, we wouldn't have a human experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. That is the totality of our experience. And all of those experiences come through the body. So we start by paying attention. We notice how it is to be sitting here in a very bare way. There's nothing that we have to do or get or figure out. But just bringing our attention to this present moment of sitting here in this place. We've had a busy day maybe. Perhaps things have happened today that still feel as if they're pulling the mind. What we do in our practice is we see if we can allow the past, even if it's the immediate past, to recede for the moment. And then we may notice that there are uh, future ideas, plans, fantasies, hopes, expectations, fears. And as we sit, we also let those go to the extent that we can. Nothing is forced. There are no ideas about how meditation should be. Perhaps we conceive of it as bliss experience or that something's going to happen extraordinary. But we let go of even those expectations because our practice is coming to see what is true right now in an ordinary sense without embellishing or needing things to be a particular way. We come to complete relaxation because we're not needing to manipulate experience to be any way other than it is. So we can relax into whatever is true. And we begin by relaxing into the body, seeing how it is to sit here. Just like that. Nothing special, nothing extraordinary. Just this body sitting here that is special and that is extraordinary. And we can appreciate it. So notice the posture of the body and to the extent that it's possible, allow the body's posture to be erect and dignified and noble. But we do so without overstretching it or making it tense or tight. Rather, we allow the spine to lengthen without overstretching. And we allow the shoulders to fall so that they're relaxed. If we're sitting on a chair, we notice the feet on the floor flat in front of us in parallel. We allow the spine to be free from the back of the chair 
mostly so that our energy doesn't fall, so that we can have energy for our practice. We notice the muscles of the face and we allow them to relax. So allow the brow to be smooth, the eyes to be closed without being clamped shut, the teeth and gums to be relaxed and open. And it's helpful to tuck the chin slightly so that the back of the neck is lengthened so it doesn't get tired. So we allow the top of the head, the crown of the head, to be the highest point in the body, almost as if a string is pulling it up to the heavens. So I'm going to be quiet for just a moment and allow you to adjust the body in all of these different ways so that there is a lengthening of the spine and a relaxation of the muscles. And continuing with the body, we allow the heart to be open, the belly to be relaxed. If you're sitting on a cushion, it's helpful to have the knees supported by the flat cushion so that the muscles don't have to strain in order to hold the legs up. So if the, if the knees are not touching the bottom cushion, you can move a little bit forward on the, on the round cushion. Place your hands where they won't need to fidget so that they can be still. So either palms down on the knees or palms up one on top of the other with the thumbs touching. And see if you can feel the posture of the body from the inside out. Sometimes our relationship to our body is almost as if we are a distance from it. There's a beautiful opening line in a James Joyce novel where he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Are you someone who lives a short distance from your body? Or can you occupy it fully? And from time to time during the next period, check back in with the body, even though I'm going to give you some instructions now for working with the mind and heart. But check back into the body because it has habits and it slumps and it slouches and it gets tight out of habit. So you can check back in from time to time and relax again. 
or allow the spine to straighten again. So notice that we have a mind. There is a mind just as well as there is a body. And the habit of the mind is to jump. In some of the Buddhist texts, the mind is described as a drunken monkey stung by a scorpion. It jumps from branch to branch. And when we meditate, we begin to become intimate with that mind that jumps, that has a hard time being present and concentrated still. And yet we know that concentration has power. It empowers the mind to be present and to be able to see what is true. And the way we begin to train the mind is by choosing an object. And in our tradition, we use the breath because it's here and it's portable and it's here all the time. So we simply notice that the body is breathing. And we pay attention to the breath at a place that is easy for us to discern the breath. It may be the belly rising and falling, or the chest rising and falling, or the air entering and leaving the nostrils. So take a few breaths, let a few breaths come and go, and see what is most natural for you where it's most natural for you to discern the movement of breath in the body. And whichever place you've chosen, allow the attention to come to rest, either at that tip of the nostrils where you can feel, actually feel the breath entering and leaving when it uh, brushes against the upper lip, or the chest rising and falling, or the belly rising and falling. Let the attention rest there for the entire period. You can make a small note of in and out just to keep the attention on this place of breathing or rising and falling if you're at the chest or belly.
And you may notice that even though the instructions seem quite simple, to allow the mind or the attention to rest on a particular part of the body breathing, that the mind will slip off and will think about something from the past or some anticipation for the future. This is not a mistake, nor does it mean that you're doing it wrong. What you're witnessing is the force of habit, and perhaps you have the first insight of insight meditation, which is how busy the mind gets, especially when we ask it to relax and simply be here. So as soon as you notice that the mind or the attention has slipped away back to the past or into the future, you notice that. You notice how it is for the mind to be not here. And gently, kindly, without recrimination or analysis or commentary or judgment, self-judgment or criticism. Allow the attention to return to the appointed object, the breath. And if you have to do that a thousand times during this period, this short period of meditation, that will be just fine. Won't be a problem. This is the nature of the training. We're training patience, determination, kindness, balance, compassion. And we're letting go of all of the tendencies of mind to judge, to condemn, to blame, And we're simply allowing the attention to return again and again and again to this present moment, allowing the mind, the agitated mind, to settle into some clarity and some ease. And if neither ease nor clarity arrive, that's perfectly okay too. Our compact is to be present for whatever is true in this moment, whatever the mood of the mind is, whatever arises in our physical experience, whether we're happy or sad or joyful or sorrowful or experiencing loss or joy, we notice that. If there's sensation in the body that is difficult, we notice that. If there's a story in the mind, 
we notice thinking. So our practice completely embraces whatever the experience is in the moment while using the breath as an anchor of attention that draws us back over and over and over again to seeing experience right here and now. And it's a practice. So just as we notice the more refined experiences such as states of mind and thoughts, you'll also notice that there are coarser or less subtle experiences such as sensations in the body and sounds in the environment. So notice any aversion that arises as a result of that, any idea that this is an interference with your practice, and see if you can open the attention wider to embrace this too, and to also include whatever reactions you may have to hearing or to difficult sensations in the body. Those are as much a part of your meditation practice as the more refined experiences.
So when we opened New York Insight, one piece of advice we got from someone was to make the place completely soundproof. And fortunately, we didn't have enough money to do it because I think there's something really wonderful about learning how to meditate in less than ideal conditions. That there's something about knowing how to work with whatever uh, conditions are arising. It strengthens the heart. And especially, I think, as a group of people of color, we really understand that deeply, don't you think? that so much of the time we're in conditions that are not ideal and the strength that it takes to learn how to work with them is something that is very portable into all of life, all of life, for everyone, of course. Um, so thank you for working with uh, the most beautiful music that we've been treated to tonight. So I prepared a talk tonight, for tonight, and um, somewhere between leaving home and now, I've lost my glasses. So I have a, a friend of mine who, um, a very dear friend of mine who was a teacher, uh, died a couple of years ago, but she was a really quite a card. And after she died, I went to uh, teach one of her groups. And so I did a little bit of a memorial with them for her. And they were telling stories about her. And one story that somebody told was being at a retreat with her. And she came into the hall all kerfuffled, flustered. And she told them that... uh, She'd prepared a whole talk, and then her computer ate it. And so what she said was, so Mama will be serving leftovers tonight. (laughs) So I might be serving leftovers tonight, but that's okay. Leftovers are sometimes, how much, how many, perfect. (laughs) Woo! Oh my God, I can see. (laughs) I don't know, I was kind of looking forward to seeing what I was going to do. (laughs) Yes. Um, I was was at the Brooklyn location last week. So her question was that she was at a Brooklyn, the Brooklyn practice last week and she fell asleep a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah a little bit. And uh, that she fell, it happened kind of today again. And is that, can she look forward, you didn't say this, but I'm, you know, embellishing. Can, can she look forward to that not happening as she becomes more experienced? <clears throat> so first of all, the minute we close our eyes, right, the body says, hey, great, we're going to sleep. Right? Isn't that what we're used to? It's like we close our eyes because we want to go to sleep. 
So the first thing that you notice in that is that is how strong habit is, right? That our minds and our bodies are are habitual creatures. So it, we take cues, right, both from internally and externally, and in the in and in the environment, we take cues from things, and. Uh, you know, it's the experiment that Pavlov did with the dogs where, you know, he would notice that they salivated when he served, he'd ring a bell, serve them food, they'd salivate, and he did that a few times, and then he took the, um, he took the, the food away, and he'd just ring the bell, and they'd still salivate, because that's how our bodies work, uh, as all well as mammals. So the, so the sleepiness can be just that. It's just like the force of habit. It's also that we get relaxed when we concentrate the mind and it's not jumping all over the place. It starts to get really quite relaxed. And again, when we get relaxed, one of the things that happens is we, because the energy gets low, the body gets in touch with how tired it is because we push ourselves a lot. So we can have some compassion for that. And then to just notice how we don't want that to happen. So not only are we noticing how it is to be habitual creatures, but we're also noticing how, you know, at times we may think sleep is a really pleasant thing, right? But in this particular case, we think it's an unpleasant thing because it's not what we want to happen. And how the body and the mind start to struggle against what we are experiencing as unpleasant. And isn't it funny that sometimes sleep can be pleasant, sometimes it can be unpleasant. So we begin to also notice how those, mood, those ways in which we receive experience are not solid, right? That there are times when the very same experience can be experienced as pleasant and the very same experience as unpleasant. So there's so even just in that little thing happening, we begin to get insight into how this organism, this mind-body works. So as for, can you count on it not happening, uh, the more experience you get? No, you can't. Because as, uh, as we begin to notice, everything changes all the time. So it's not as if you're going to suddenly become a great meditator and all of the conditions, internal and external, are going to start lining up to be exactly what you want them to be. It's not like that. What it's like is that you get what you get. And in meditation, you're training the mind to work with whatever you get. Right. So if you get a pleasant experience you begin to notice that that isn't going to last forever. So you learn how to not grasp at it, because if you grasp at what's changing, you'll suffer. And you also learn how to not push away what's unpleasant, because what you learn is you don't have any control over when unpleasant is going to arise. So instead of pushing it away and trying to make it go away and trying to manipulate circumstances to your liking, 
like the music, right? You begin to learn how to keep this mind, body, heart really still so that whatever is happening around it doesn't disturb it, right? So even sleepiness can become an object of meditation. Even sleepiness, you can start to think, oh, what's it like for the mind and body to get sleepy? Right? Before we just submitted or struggled. Now we're not doing either, but we're getting curious. Because meditation is about getting to know this being in all of its glory and all of its difficulty. So whatever experience we're having, we know it's going to come again, right? Because that's just the nature of life. So it's not like you're going to become this perfect meditator who never gets sleepy. But what will happen as you become more and more skilled at it is you become more and more skilled at working with the conditions that arise, right? So sleepiness becomes an object of meditation And when we get curious, what does it feel like to be sleepy? We awaken, because that curiosity wakes up the mind, and when the mind is awake, the body gets awake. So it's not like there's some magical formula that's going to make you not sleepy anymore. But the willingness to be present for whatever is true makes the mind bright. There's a luminosity that happens when the mind is willing to be curious, to investigate, to see what's true, to understand what's true, to be clear, to know. There's a luminosity about that. There's a clarity about that. There's an energy about that. There is an awakeness about that that happens. And so, yes, in a way, it doesn't happen anymore, but in a way it does. And because, but it's, it's because when it does, you know how to meet it. You learn, you train the mind to meet it. I hope that's helpful. Great. Anyone else? Yes, please. So you were having a lot of physical reactions? Is that what you're saying? So it was activating. Yes. Ah, okay. Yeah, that can happen. You know, it's like anything can happen at any time. <laughs> really, right? And and I'm 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 not making fun of what you're saying. I'm it's really true. Anything can happen at any time. And so, um 
it's hard for me to know, right, what was actually going on. But it could be resistance, right? It could be just struggling sometimes when we're like really energetic and we just suddenly calm down. There'll be, you know, the, the body and mind will let you know that it doesn't like that so much, right? And so it will do that in a lot of different ways. Um, again, you know, the, 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 the way of, the meditative way of working with it is to just simply notice what's happening. To really just, oh, so this is what it's like for the body to feel over-energetic, which it might also be that. It might be a kind of discharge of energy that's happening, right? We just don't know. Um, so rather than trying to figure out what it is, what's helpful is to just turn your attention to whatever is predominant. So in that moment, you know, the tearing of the eyes or the body feeling a little bit jerky or whatever it is, is your predominant experience. So the meditative way of working with that is to let go of the breath because there's something really pulling the attention now. So that's the next instruction from using the breath as a way of calming the mind and body is once you've done that and you know some experiences arise they become predominant you let go of the breath and you embrace that and your attention uh, takes that in because that's what's pulling the attention right so what's it like for the body to feel jerky for the eyes to be tearing for all of that to be happening and and you probably didn't like it very much, right? Because it wasn't pleasant. So notice what that's like. Just not liking what's happening. And noticing you don't have a whole hell of a lot of control over it either, right? So since you don't, there's no point in trying to make it stop or pushing it away. But simply allowing it to be your teacher in that moment, right? To be the new object of your attention, and one of the things that you'll notice is that things change, right? Everything is impermanent. Nothing stays the same. So even within that experience, there's going to be change. So yeah, your eyes may be watering at one moment and they may stop watering, or it may get worse, or it may get a little bit better, or it may get more water or less water or whatever. Uh, the body can be jumping and after after paying attention to it for a while, not because you paid attention, but because the nature of everything is to change, even the jumpiness may change. It may become you know, more jumpy or less jumpy or jerky or less jerky or whatever it is. And can you pay attention to it in a way that's kind and compassionate, right? Because what we, you know, I don't know about you, but it, especially in the beginning, our tendency is to like criticize ourselves and to say, look, everybody else is, you know, looking so like Buddhas, right? Nothing's happening for them, right? They're perfectly calm. Look at me, I'm jerky, I'm jumping, my eyes are tearing, what's wrong with me? I never, I can never do anything right, you know, I probably got the instructions wrong, I probably should be doing something, but I missed it, she said it, and I didn't hear it. Whatever the story is we make up about who we are and how we are, and can you notice that too? And meet that with some kindness and some compassion and clarity and know that it's just the mind thinking, that it's not the truth. So if, if we can do that, we're starting to learn a lot. 
right? Because we believe our thoughts. Why? Because they're ours. Or we think they're ours, right? But did you make them come? No, you didn't make them come. Did you make the jerkiness come? No, you didn't make the jerkiness come. It happened. So we start to learn all about that, about seeing what is really true about our experience, how much control we have or we don't have over it, whether it's permanent or it's not permanent, what the struggle with life is like. Because, you know, our human life, it's tragic in a way. It has a sort of poignancy. But we don't notice it a lot because we spend a lot of time trying to make it other than it is. Denying it, suppressing it, avoiding it, papering over it, having a drink, having a joint, you know, doing whatever we do to make it go away, to make the pain go away. But in fact, what can be really helpful is to understand that this human experience so that we meet it differently, so that our relationship to it becomes somewhat different. So in every single thing that happens in meditation, if we really pay attention, what is meditation? It's paying attention in the present moment without judgment and with an intention to understand. So every moment can be a moment in which we're learning something about how it is to be in life, about what it, is, what it means to meet life with awe and wonder and curiosity rather than with preconceived notions of how it should be, including meditation, right? Because when we have preconceived notions, then we try to make everything fit And then we miss the beauty of the moment, of what the moment has to offer us. So I'm going on and on and on, but um, so whatever is happening, you know, see if you can just uh, be with it uh, as long as you can be with it. And if then if there's something that you need to change or shift or move, you know, it's okay too. It's okay to do that. Okay? Hmm. Any other questions or yes? Oh, thank you. It's a nat- it's the natural breath. So in the texts that give us these practices, the Buddha um, actually directs and there's a sutta that's partic- particularly directed to breathing. And he actually directs that we notice if it's a long breath. And there's a mental note of this is a long breath. If it's a short breath, if it's a smooth breath, if it's a rough breath, if it's a deep breath or a shallow breath, that we allow it to be just as it is. Again, because it's not a breathing exercise. It's an exercise in attention. So we allow it to be exactly as it is. And again, we learn a lot from just knowing what our breath is like, right? So we know, for instance, we may not even notice we're anxious, and yet the breath's starting to get short. So we know, oh, this is a short breath. And that may 
allow us to see the anxiety that's in the mind. So we begin to understand the connection between mind and body and heart. And I know a lot of people practice yoga, and in yoga, the breath is sometimes directed, but not in meditation. So I wanted to talk about training the mind, which we've actually really started talking about already. Um, Because that's what we're doing when we're practicing meditation. So we tend to think of the goal of meditation in a kind of uh, macro way. So we think, well, especially those of us who've heard uh, Dharma, you know, many Dharma talks where we as teachers uh, really encourage that the goal of meditation not be so much, um, you know, relaxation, which of course is a byproduct of meditation and is very useful and helpful because when the mind calms down, we begin to see clearly. So we want the mind and body to, to, to calm down. And yet that really is just the beginning of the long journey of meditation. And so what we talk about is the actual um, complete unbinding, complete freedom of heart and mind. That that is the goal. When the Buddha talked about um, the journey of meditation, he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And meditation is one of three um, limbs of a path that he laid out as the journey from suffering to uh, freedom. So he said that not only should we meditate, but that there also should be a life of ethics, morality, and also uh, that the part of the journey is a journey of wisdom where we understand wisely and we have a wise intention and that wise intention is one of harmlessness and kindness so that the path is a complete path of which meditation is only one limb. So we, we tend to think of um, our practice, those of us who've heard these teachings often as, you know, going for the full enchilada, right? Going for complete freedom, complete unbinding of the heart. And that's, that's really fine. However, on the journey, on the trip from freedom, from, from suffering to freedom, there are many steps along the way in which transformation happens. So if we don't acknowledge these tangible, specific, and very direct results of practice, we lose touch with what is actually uplifting about this practice, and we may lose heart. Because it's not that easy a practice. And those of you who've been practicing for a while can, I'm sure, testify to that. And those of you who just started tonight can also probably testify to that because you hear these instructions, right? 
and the instructions seem quite simple. So what we're used to is when we have simple instructions, we can follow them, right? But meditation is kind of slippery, which you may have experienced. Everybody, who, whether you're a beginner or you're an experienced meditator, we experience the slipperiness of it, that we place the mind on the object, the breath this time, and it slips off. And we place the mind on the object again, and it slips off again. And we think, well, Jesus, everybody else in the room looks good, still and quiet and concentrated. What's wrong with me? Why can't I just follow these very um, simple instructions? So if we're not understanding what happens along the way, we may uh, lose heart. When I first started practicing, I had an experience of losing heart. I felt that my practice was stale after a while. You know, in the beginning, you kind of get excited because it's something new and it's, you know, and it's, it's, uh, you, you start to see some progress and so you kind of start to expect all of that to keep happening. But I started to, I reached a point where there was like a plateau and things felt stale and it felt as if I wasn't growing fast enough in my spiritual work. And I told my teacher, I said, I, I think I'm really kind of losing it. And she took me back about a year in my life and she took me through what had happened in that year and asked me to how I would have reacted to certain experiences a year ago and how I'm reacting to them now. And then she had me consider what I was like in many different aspects a year ago and what I was like in that present moment. And then she said the most wonderful thing that has always been a real inspiration in my practice, and it was really simple. And bear in mind, this was like 1970, right? So this is like 43 years ago. She said, you're opening like a flower. Really simple. What a simple, simple statement. And yet, it has stayed with me all of these years because every time I get somewhat dejected or I think my practice is slipping or it's stale or that I need something to sort of keep me going, I come back to that and I go through that same exercise of looking at experiences a year ago and what I was like then and experiences today and what I'm like today. And no matter when it's been, whether it was 40 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago or yesterday, the very same thing happens. I begin to see truly what the Buddha said was true, that drop by drop a bucket gets filled. And that the practice that I do every single day, every time I get up and I resolve to sit at my altar and close my eyes and follow my breath and then see what happens, see what opens up. And usually it's just some very simple present moment experience and I'm willing to be present for it. That 
something is happening even though it may be completely invisible to me. And so I really want to tell you about that because I feel as if I can really be of support to you, to encourage you and to inspire you to practice, even though sometimes it may feel as if it's useless, like nothing's happening, and I may as well, you know, study Sufi dancing or belly dancing or, you know, whatever else might be, might seem efficacious. One of the things that the Buddha says is that the Dharma is beautiful in the beginning, it's beautiful in the middle, and it's beautiful in the end. And in the beginning of our practice, there is interest and perhaps a little bit of faith. Maybe you've heard a Dharma talk or a friend has told you about what meditation has done for them. And so it brings you to your seat. It brings you to a gathering like this where you practice together with others. And so that inspiration and that faith or desire to um, to understand your life more deeply ripens in an interest to practice the teachings. We aspired, we were interested when we had our first insight or heard the first teachings in whatever form we received them. There was this lovely quality in the beginning. And in the middle, we become persistent. We notice that sometimes it's not as easy as the other times. And we direct our effort to establishing mindfulness and working with hindrances. So you were talking about sleepiness. You were talking about sleepiness. It's known as a hindrance, that there are five hindrances to practice. Sleepiness, restlessness, desire, aversion, and doubt. And in the middle, we begin to know those hindrances really quite well. They become our friends. We say, oh, hello, sleepiness, it's come again. And we, we are able to work with that. And there's a loveliness to that where we're no longer resisting what is unpleasant, but we're actually allowing it to come into our experience and we're beginning to see how we can work with that. And in the end, we receive the fruit of the practice, purity, clarity, freedom. And that purity, clarity, and freedom, even when they don't amount to complete liberation, allows us to see that at least we are beginning to unglue, unstick from our former unscrupulousness or from acting on malicious intent. We know enough to be in touch with intention and aspiration and to see our motivation before it gets the better of us. And at some point in the practice, a certain degree of steadiness arrives. It comes. So there's also a loveliness in the end.
so we can have some uh, faith in that that there will be a journey that has been walked for 2600 years by millions and millions and millions and millions of beings many of whom have uh, profoundly profoundly affected uh, this world and perhaps we don't even have that ambition to be someone who profoundly affects the world but we should really understand that just by being here we are profoundly affecting the world that there is uh, an illusion that we have of separation because our bodies are separate, right? We feel as if the skin that encloses this bag of bones and muscles and tendons and joints is the uh, outer um, border of who we are. But actually it's not true. It's a total illusion. If it were true, listening to me now all you would hear is we would have absolutely no way of communicating. But in fact, what's happening right now is a really intimate experience. That intimate experience is I'm making language with my voice and this language is hitting a tympanic membrane in your ear and that tympanic membrane is wiggling. That's pretty intimate. So it means that even just by my speaking, there is a profound effect on you. And that effect could be that you say, this is garbage, or this is nonsense, or I don't believe it, or wow, I hadn't thought of it that way. Whatever it is, whatever your reaction is, we are having an intimate experience. And we're having an intimate experience because we are completely connected. Because this illusion that I am separate from you and you are separate from me is exactly that. It's an illusion. So we will profoundly affect the world just by the very fact that we exist. Every, every word we speak, every emotion that we have, every thought that we have, every intention that we have, every act that we do, completely affects the web of life to which we all belong and from which we cannot fall. So the practice that you do, if over time it begins to influence your inspiration, your aspirations, your intentions, your words, your heart's desire, your bodily acts, and your thoughts completely affects everything around you. So what happens? We learn to settle the mind. 
and that has a profound effect on our lives. It's not always easy to train the mind to shake off a grudge or to um, shake off an obsession or to, cha- or to stop chasing things. But we can feel a sense of uh, balanced well-being in ourselves. We can make the mind attend to itself. We can allow the mind to be fit for wise reflection and realization. And we can become capable of contemplating our experience. We can begin to see our weaknesses in terms of moods and emotions and how we can allay them. Do we have some say over whether we're needy or we're joyful or we're sorrowful or we're um, happy or sad or um, obsessive or resistant or aversive or loving or kind? Or is it just something that happens? The path of liberation that this meditation invites us into is about having free choice uh, to experience what we would like to experience in terms of goodness, in terms of harmony, and in terms of happiness. So true accomplishment requires in this practice a way for the mind to settle. So what must the mind have in order for it to settle? It begins with the freedom to choose the path that we're going on. So it's not a compulsion. It's not like if you don't do this, then this, 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 and this is going to happen to you or you're not on the right path or you're not on the only path or you're not going to be good or you're not going to be this or you're not going to be that. Because at the beginning of the path, what happens is there are offerings and there are possibilities. And this freedom to choose causes faith to arise. And it also causes interest to arise. And to put a teaching into practice require faith and interest because of the nature of mind, because it can't operate properly unless there's freedom. But the problem is we don't allow the mind to be unoccupied a lot of the time. We're filling it up with this, that, and the other thing, and we're trying to make we're trying to make stories, and we're trying to make things fit the way we want them to fit, and we're trying to make them happen the way we want them to happen. And it, the mind is thrown around by sensory stimulation and all kinds of social pressures to engage and act in certain ways, because we have some very solid ideas about who we are, how we are, 
and how we should be. So the mind is grabbed and thrown from this point to that point in a very kind of stiff and solid and frozen way. His life is flowing. It's like a river that's constantly flowing. And yet if you really check it out, what you really begin to see is that we are constantly trying to freeze that which is forever flowing. That this impermanence that life is, this constant beautiful flow where we have no idea what's going to happen next is what keeps us alive and what makes us unalive, what what puts us to sleep, what doesn't awaken us is this idea that we already know what it's about that we already know what's going to happen because it happened last week, the week and the week before and the week before and the week before so we think the same thing is going to happen. We keep waking up every day thinking that it's exactly the same as it was yesterday, but guess what? If you check it out, it's totally different. And it's totally different because we're different. Because with every single experience in every single moment, we are shifting and changing. In every moment, no matter what our upbringing was, no matter what our parents taught us, no matter what our teachers taught us, no matter what experiences we've had that have had profound effects on us, in every moment it's possible to change. And that's what brings us to a meditation seat. That acknowledgement that everything can change at all times. And if we weren't convinced of that possibility, we wouldn't be here. But we're in a kind of dilemma because we can't control the mind, it seems. The mind we can't get it to abide in a a peaceful state or to let go of an agitated one. We can't purely by willpower make the mind stay in well-being or even cause well-being to arise. And we don't even fully understand why because the mind is too caught to know what it's caught by. Have you ever noticed that? We get caught by something, and then we react and we blow up, and then we think, oh my God, what happened? I have no idea what happened. Somebody said something, and before I knew it, I was just off and running, and I said all kinds of stuff I didn't want to say, and I hurt all kinds of people that I didn't want to hurt, and I have no idea how that happened. So a mind that's hijacked can't see what it's captured by. And we're getting hijacked all the time. We're getting hijacked all the time because we're not present. So because we're in the future or we're in the past, something sneaks in, hits us, we're often running with our... um, learned behavior and because we're not present we're unable to discern 
what is appropriate response in this moment and what is not. So we, we act with reactivity rather than with um, presence. And it's not dependent on external forces. It's not dependent on money or opportunity or um, getting this or that done or becoming this or becoming that or being eager for achievement and fearful of failure. If If there's personal emotional bondage to worldly features or forces, then the mind will always be caught in them. So there's a lot to be said for learning to recollect what is here now. To be constantly training the mind to be totally present for what is here now, what the circumstances are right here and right now. And we practice with our own anxiety by coming to terms with the insecure nature of the world. The world of social and economic patterns is really beyond our control. And we don't like to know that. We really don't want to know that. But it's really true. We have to see the growth and decline as not ours. Even this body, its shape, its health, its vigor, its illness, are things we have little say over. We can adjust within a certain range, but its nature is to be other. It declines, and you can't stop it. Aging's going to happen. You can douse it with perfume, and its odor breaks through. You can, use, you can see its hunger and its tiredness and its hurting, and they all come through. And just notice how caught we are by the phenomenal world and how we're constantly trying to make it fit what our desires are, to make it comfortable and convenient, and then getting irritated and despairing when it won't be what we want it to be, often in ways that cause pain and distress for ourselves and others. So we have to get in touch with the fundamental reality of what it means to be human and to learn where to start. First of all, we're we're definitely part of the world. We're not apart from it, we're not separate from it, even though we can't control it. So the mind, we may think it's inside the body, but the mind encompasses the whole world. See if you really believe that. See if that's your experience. Try it out for yourself. The mind is not inside this body. The mind is the whole world. Because if we think the mind is inside the body, our meditation is going to be very tight. Because again, we think we can hold on and make something happen. So what? instead of self-consciousness, 
See if you can focus on benevolence and trust. Benevolence and trust for the whole world. It's healing. And even though the world may sometimes seem hostile and crazy, notice what your relationship is to it. That's what meditation is teaching us. Just by being able to listen to that music and let it be in the background and not let it irritate us, anger us, or take us off of our main path, in the same way we can look at whatever is happening in the world and be totally here for it. And it doesn't mean that we're passive or that our acceptance of what is true means that we don't do what is necessary and respond appropriately to whatever the conditions are, whether it's injustice or abuse or tightness or cruelty, that all of those require a response which the wise mind knows. The wise mind understands the appropriate response. The mind that is agitated and deluded about its separation from the rest of the world does not know what the appropriate response is. So our practice is learning that. And I'm making an awful lot of very bold statements tonight. I recognize that. And what I want you to do is to not believe any of it. Okay? What I really want you to do is to begin through your practice to really get to know what is true in terms of your relationship to the world. And to really look into whether, and, and I mean this for any kind of practice. So even if you're a beginner and you walk out of here and you say, meditation, eh, tried it, been there, done that, not for me, that's okay. Whatever practice you decide to take up, really pay attention. Really pay attention because it's not what the world is presenting so much as our relationship to it that determines the happiness, the freedom, or the suffering and the bondage of our lives. And yes, all of those conditions out there are true. And yes, all of those conditions out there need to be worked with and dealt with and appropriate response needs to be made. And yet the primary, the primary point of undertaking any kind of journey, any kind of spiritual journey, whether it's the one that we're here gathered to do or any other kind of spiritual journey, is real understanding. And, and that understanding comes not from listening to somebody else's words and deciding, yeah, that sounds good, I think I'll adopt that, but really paying attention in your own experience to what is true. Come and see for yourself, is what the Buddha said. And he meant that sincerely, not come and see that I'm right, but really come and see for yourself what is true, especially in the times that we're living in. 
times are, are difficult. And even though they may feel as if they're loosening up a bit, I think that we're still in for a lot of bumpy stuff. So what is really important is that we prepare this body-mind, we prepare ourselves for whatever conditions will arrive so that in the midst of all conditions there is peace, there is happiness, there is clarity, there is contentment, there is kindness, there is compassion, and what we contribute to the world doesn't make it worse. So whatever angers, whatever um, anxiety, whatever fears we have, we're entitled to them. But we can work with them. We can work with them in a way that we don't suffer anymore and that all of the beings with whom we are so intimately tied will not suffer also from our thoughts, our words, and our actions. So I'm going to stop there um, so that we have just a tiny amount of time for any questions or comments that you may have. How would I qualify what's true? What do you mean by qualify? That. Huh? Uh, that you mean how can you and I agree what's true? Is that what you mean? Um, yes. I, I think what's true in my experience is true for me. What's true in your experience is true for you. And I need to respect and honor what is true for you, even though I may disagree, because it's not my experience, I can still honor and respect that something is true for you that's not true for me. But I, for, you, for my own purposes, I must live in um, consonance or aligned with what values have come out of what I've seen as true. And there are all kinds of guidelines about how we can live. But again, we, we, we kind of test it. So if, you know, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the Five Precepts of Buddhism, if, you know, if, we're, if there's an injunction or we're enjoined to um, not tell lies, right? We can test it. What happens when I tell a lie? Right? Or what happens when I don't tell a lie? Okay. Or when I'm, um, when I have a drink or when I don't have a drink or what, whatever, whatever it is. So even though there may be injunctions and um, particular philosophies, none of them have to be accepted without testing. So I would say what's true is what's, what I've tested and what is true in my experience. I can suspend belief on things that I haven't yet experienced. Of course, they discovered two years down the road that 
And isn't that the beauty, really, of learning to train the mind? Because when we learn to train the mind in bare attention, what begins to happen is we begin to be able to discern the difference between what's true in bare terms and what the mind is projecting onto. So how, does, how, how, do, how do we work as human beings? We have form, right, this body. We have feelings, right, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We have perceptions, you know, so I look here, I say, oh, that's Joshua. But I have all kinds of ideas about what Joshua is from the past, right? So it's now a perception that, based on the past, which may not be true right now, right? There's um, consciousness, so there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, all of which, if we're not careful, we may universalize to every other person. So I taste something, I think, oh, this is bitter, and yet somebody else may taste it and say, oh, this is lovely, right? So we have form, feeling, and then we have mental formations. We have all these ideas about things. And again, as we were saying before, we think they're true because they're our ideas. But actually, my thought about my mother is not my mother. My thought about anything is not the thing itself. And how, how, pers- how um, sharp are we in knowing that? How much do we actually believe what we're thinking about my mother or my father or this person or that person? How much do I understand what is perception and what is true in this moment? Because perception is based on the past. How much do I understand about um, uh, feelings that what's pleasant for me may be unpleasant for you? So So as you can see, everything's slippery, right? There's no place to stand that's secure that we can say, oh, yep, Okay, got it, this is it. Done, finished. I know the world. But there's a way of constantly being available, being present in every single moment for this moment just as it is, bare of all of those perceptions and thoughts and ideas and feelings. But it doesn't disrespect any of that because that's how we operate as human beings. So what is truth? What is true? Seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, thinking. That's true. Yes? I have a question. The mind not being contained in the body? So... Do you know what's happening behind you? No. You don't have any clue. People are sitting behind you. People are sitting behind you. How do you know that? Because uh, I turned my head earlier. Did you? Yes. So do you know people are sitting behind you? How do you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you sense them. How do you sense them? Uh-huh. 
So there's an intuitive sense. So we have all we have these uh, six senses, which in in Buddhism we call thinking, the mind, a, a sense organ also. So we have all of these senses that take in the totality of the our experience of the world. But we have um, those senses are not if they were only contained in the head we would have very very narrow um, scope for understanding the world we understand the world because the mind can take in the totality of what the world is and if the mind were just contained in this short, in this small body it it would not have the ability to do that but again it's really test it like don't believe me so go outside and take in the whole sky and really get a sense of how the mind is when it when it relates to the sky how it is in this world okay so we have to stop. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.